Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, William Arkin. Bill Arkin is a scholar, analyst, author, journalist. He's been working on the subject of national security for over 40 years. He is the author most recently of Unmanned, Drones, Data, and the Illusion of Perfect Warfare. He's a national security consultant at Vice News and to NBC News Investigates, the investigative arm of NBC News. His website is at WilliamAarkin.wordpress.com. Arkin is the author with Alexa O'Brien of a report on Vice News that's just come out called The Most Militarized Universities in America, and it lists the top 100 most militarized universities in America. Bill Arkin, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you very much for having me on. Thanks for coming on, and thanks for doing this report. Uh, I, and I know many others, have been looking for this sort of information uh, for many years and not come up with the uh, initiative to produce it, and we are quite grateful to you. What, uh, what were you looking for, and what did you find? Well, to do a report like this, you have to s- determine what the parameters are and what methodology you're going to apply. And we ourselves... Uh, questioned whether or not we wanted to call these schools the most militarized or not, and uh, went back and forth on that. But but in the end, we decided that most militarized, in fact, was the best description of what we were ranking. And really, it began with an extraordinary database of information, which was the resumes and uh, uh, biographies of over 90,000 people who work in the intelligence community and in the national security state. So these are people who have top-secret clearances, who have worked in and around uh, national security since 9-11. So we took those people and we said to ourselves, well, where did they go to school? And uh, based upon that, uh, we started a ranking of what schools were most uh, prevalent and most popular with the people who actually work in the intelligence community. And then we added an additional 50 factors or so that had to do with everything from funding to whether or not they had degree-granting programs in areas relating to national security to whether or not they had research centers that dealt with homeland or national security. And adjusted the raw number of people who had graduated from those schools, but really with the exception of maybe a half dozen schools which receive uh, the predominant amount of research and development funding from the Department of Defense, it really didn't change the rankings very much at all. And so when we started to look at the results, it was really stunning that of the 100 most prevalent schools amongst those who are in the intelligence community and the national security community, uh, 20 of them were online schools. Online schools like American Military University, University of Phoenix, Strayer, DeVry, Capella, etc. And that, and not just 20 of them, but they were rank, ranking very high. Number t- two and three, for instance, 
American Military University and University of Phoenix. So yeah. we thought that was an interesting discovery. And then as we look further at the clusters of schools that were the most uh, popular with people who were in the intelligence community, we saw, secondly, how prevalent the Washington, D.C. area schools are. And, you know, on some level, this is not a surprise. National security is Washington, and Washington is national security. So the fact that Georgetown or George Washington University or American University appears high on the list of schools which have the closest relationship with the national security state is surprising. What was surprising, however, is that many of the schools, 17 out of the top 20, out of the top 100, were D.C. area schools, and not just the elite schools that are associated with foreign policy studies, but schools like Bowie State and Northern Virginia Community College and uh, um, Old Dominion, James Madison, uh, G- George Mason University. Uh, schools who have clearly uh, profited from the last 14 years of warfare. And then the third group of universities that we saw uh, were, of course, the traditional powerhouses of, of de- defense research. And these are schools like Johns Hopkins, uh, Penn State, uh, MIT, uh, Carnegie Mellon, and... Um, Though it is the case that they get two-thirds of the money that the Defense Department gives to universities for research and development and have traditionally had the closest relationship, what we further discovered is that the majority of what they were working on was not weapons per se, but information technologies and intelligence technologies and big data analytics and techniques associated with um, human language translation or drone uh, 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 operations. And so we saw a subtle shift in the research and development universities from their strict weapons work. I mean, Penn State is sort of well-known as being the school that more or less invented every torpedo that the Navy has utilized since World War II. Johns Hopkins is famous for its radar and for its proximity fuse research that it's done over the years. Carnegie Mellon is famous for having the first computer sciences department of any university in America. But really what we found was that the weapons work, while being done at the classified level, was really much more focused on information work. And that's what we found amongst the cadre of people in our database as well, that uh, that they were really focused on information processing, information technology, communications, networks, um, retrieval, storage, etc. And that, in fact, what we discovered was that the cadre of people in the military and in the national security community on the intelligence side were more likely to be information workers than they were to be our our kind of romantic view of old-fashioned spies. And so that then raised the last question for us, which was, 
to what degree do the study of the liberal arts influence this world? And what we discovered was it doesn't influence this world at all. That of the top 100 liberal arts colleges in America, according to U.S. News and World Report, not one of them appears on our list of the top 100 most militarized schools. Hardly anyone on our list studies history or literature or uh, English. And furthermore, there isn't even a preponderance of people studying the Middle East or Arabic or anything that relates to the humanities side of our current warring. And so what we found, in fact, is that we're training a generation of technicians that are really the equivalent of the infantry of old, that these new information workers, keyboard warriors, we call them in our article, have replaced the soldiers, and that the ratio of what is necessary in the military and the intelligence world to sustain fighters in the field has shifted so strongly towards intelligence and information technology that that's really reflected in their educational backgrounds. We're speaking with Bill Arkin about his article with Alexa O'Brien at Vice News called The Most Militarized Universities in America. It, it sounds like intelligence uh, with uh, quotes around it. Uh, I mean, these are workers you're describing as lacking a liberal arts background, lacking a, a well-rounded education, uh, linguistic and cultural uh, studies, alternatives to war studies. Uh, are, are, is there an impact not from the liberal arts on these fields and these professions, but the other way around? What is the impact that militarizing these universities? I'm I, I'm sitting here at the University of Virginia, 19 on the list. Uh, people around here don't know this, don't think of it as a militarized university. What is the impact that all of this funding and all of this concentration on uh, the military has on such universities and on our educational system as a whole? Well, to some degree, I, I, I think the answer is both good news and bad news. I mean, the good news is it has very little impact. The bad news is it has very little impact, which is to say that the gulf which is growing within our society between a class of people who serve in the national security field and the elite of our society who get the liberal arts educations at the best schools and are already... Uh, of a socioeconomic class where they're not going to serve in the military or necessarily serve in government, certainly not at low levels, uh, is becoming more and more stark. And so to, when I look at most schools, the large public universities like the University of Virginia or University of Michigan or uh, other schools like that that are on our list, um, I, I don't see the military uh, having much of an impact on the university at large, other than the fact that defense research and development is a is a tremendous profit sector for any university. And so like sports, if you want to compete, uh, you definitely want to collect as much defense research and development dollars as you can. And uh, but but the truth of the matter is that that there are some universities 
that we discovered on our list, Central Texas College, Cochise College, University of Central Florida, University of South Florida. Um, these are schools that are uh, appendages of large military bases and hubs, and they're significant uh, uh, p- uh, providers of education and training for uh, military and intelligence personnel. I don't think that people outside of the world of the military have ever even heard of many of these schools. I'd, I'd never heard of Cochise College as an example. And um, it's located in Arizona, right outside Fort Huachuca, which is the main Army intelligence training base. And it's a two-year school that essentially manufactures credentials for young intelligence analysts by giving them an AA degree in intelligence analysis on the basis of their experiential learning. And so, in essence, these young men and women are buying an education credential to accompany their intelligence training. So, but when you think about the schools in the Northeast, or you think about the classic liberal arts college, I don't see very much overlap at all, and I think that... uh, We have to look at this with a different paradigm, not so much the paradigm that the Pentagon and Pentagon money is having some kind of a a, a negative or even influence on this world, but more that uh, these worlds are so separate that uh, very little in the liberal arts, very little in the in the aesthetic of the study of the humanities penetrates into the world of national security and vice versa. Uh, Very little of the world of national security, which is increasingly centered in a bubble in Washington, D.C., has much influence or has much uh, resonance outside of Washington, D.C. So maybe all of the history and uh, other liberal arts departments that do such a horrible job on peace and war uh, do that of their own uh, free will. But uh, what, what about these online schools? Are, are they so heavily military because they, there are people on active duty in the military doing school at the same time? Or how, how is that working? Well, certainly there has been two developments which have led to the growth of distance learning in American society in general. And one is the Internet and the availability of these kinds of schools at a distance. So distance learning has become more and more prevalent. And second, these are schools which are able to um, make their curricula and their uh, uh, rules relating to admissions and transfers and credits to be in consonance with the nature of a military career with frequent movements and and uh, and night school and things like that. So I, I see those two developments working together to make uh, those schools more relevant. But at the same time, I also see that... Uh, there's a lot of money involved here. And uh, we're talking about $15 billion a year or so in GI Bill and tuition assistance that is dispersed amongst those who are both on active duty, their spouses and those who are veterans, 
and that's a lot of money, and uh, that's a very attractive pot of money when you consider also at the same time that 12 of the 20 online schools on our list are for-profit companies. They're listed on the stock market. They're public. They're, they're making a profit, and they are seeking a profit. And so their primary uh, responsibility is to their shareholders and not necessarily to their students. Um, we didn't really try to gauge the educational quality issues. In fact, I, I was very reluctant to do so myself. I served in Army Intelligence in the 1970s, and I myself have a degree from the University of Maryland, which I received when I was in the Army overseas in Germany. And so I don't look down upon these educational backgrounds necessarily as intrinsically being less than others. I think what we see, however, is a greater and greater concentration in the Washington, D.C. area. And if you just take the D.C. schools and the online schools, it's 37 of the 100. And if you add a few schools that are close to the military because they're close to military bases, it's almost half of the 100. And so really what you're talking about here is a set of schools which exist to service a government need, if you will. Uh, and it's not just a government need for training. It's also a bureaucratic requirement for credentialing that's necessary in order for people to get promotions and to move their careers. And so I, I question whether or not people are getting quality educations, but I probably... If you asked me, I would question whether people were getting quality education at Harvard, too, because the, the bottom line is that if we are separated by class in our society anyhow, if we are separated socioeconomically anyhow, then we aren't getting a rich education whether we go to Cochise College or whether we go to Dartmouth College. I think that is an excellent point. The the number three, I think, Phoenix University got in some trouble in recent weeks and at least temporarily cut off from uh, being promoted uh, within the military. I don't know if you saw that story or want to comment on it, but I, I, I was also intrigued that you found no, uh, no correlation with politically conservative uh, or right-leaning schools, uh, and that you found such a concentration in Virginia, Maryland, and D.C. I think 17, and most of those in the top 20, uh, are in Virginia, Maryland, and D.C. Why, when this internet that you talked about and this shrinking world has made it possible to to travel and recruit from anywhere, is it is it inertia of past trends? Is it that professors are working in the D.C. area? Why why that concentration geographically? Well, I think those are great questions, and of course, as I said earlier, national security has become Washington. Washington is national security. So the concentration of the intelligence agencies and the Pentagon and the large departments, including a huge new department which has been created since 9-11, the Department of Homeland Security, has influenced uh, the educational system enormously. Uh, before 9-11, there were zero programs in America teaching 
or conferring a degree in Homeland Security. And now there are 250 colleges and universities in America that offer a degree in Homeland Security. Uh, there was only one school that offered a degree in law enforcement intelligence. Now there's two or three dozen schools that offer a degree in law enforcement intelligence. So there is, to some degree, uh, just the post-9-11 phenomena of growth in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. And this is to account for uh, so many of the schools. The second is, it is cheaper to uh, uh, educate people, to train them, uh, to put them through the education system, if you will, uh, by, by adjunct professors as opposed to a regular faculty. It's cheaper for the school to do so. And where is the greatest number of qualified, I put that in quotes, people to teach courses relating to these subjects but Washington, D.C.? So I think uh, some people call that a self-licking ice cream cone. Uh, it's certainly a self-perpetuating system. But there's no question that overall what you see is really a domination from Washington, and Washington increasingly in a bubble, isolated from the rest of society. Yeah, I guess Eisenhower called it the military-industrial complex, uh, and some people add academic, among other terms, to that now. Uh, we Before we uh, run out of time, I want to turn to your book, uh, Unmanned, Drones, Data, and the Illusion of Perfect Warfare, uh, in particular that last phrase. Uh, could you tell people what, uh, what your book is about? Well, I had started to write a book straight about drones, and what I found as I got deeper and deeper into the subject matter, that really drones were all about data, about our overwhelming appetite for and, and collection of uh, more and more data and, and, the, and the race to uh, uh, collect that data, to process that data, to analyze that data, to move that data, to store that data, and to then uh, be able to uh, uh, re recall it when necessary. And and, and we might so add to, I, to kill hundreds of people with missiles, 90% of them uh, based on no data, and the other 10% on rather weak data. Well, that, that, that would be your opinion. I mean, this is a sort of uh, one of these weird, meticulous processes where uh, uh, the American public demands... Uh, 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 it's uninvolvement in national security, and the national security state to its own interests has responded in spades. And so uh, unmanned is what we get because unmanned is what we demand. And uh, uh, I don't think that the process is slipshod. I think the process is wrong-headed, and that's really what I focus on in my book, that, that uh, it may be the case that no... Uh, civilian casualties could be attained at some nirvana in the future. It may be the case that our brilliant weapons can become even more brilliant. Write them another check and they'll certainly try. But does that mean that the way in which we're fighting the war on terrorism or our warring in the Middle East in general is wise or well-conceived or a good strategy? And so I think people get tripped up on these questions of civilian casualties, and they get tripped up on these questions of 
of oh. killing from the air. Well, I, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't it, want it, the drones to kill more accurately. I don't want the drones to be improved. Uh, but well, is it really just my I, opinion that they're, that 90% no, it's a, it's a, of the people being killed are not targeted at all? Well, again, as I said, that is your opinion, because you're throwing a number out there that is a number that is used by one party to make the argument that they're making. And I, I would argue that if 10% of the drones being used were being used to kill people through their electronic signatures, you would probably still oppose the use of drones for this purpose. And so I'm just asking you to consider that the question is not necessarily how many civilians die. The question is not necessarily what the means is by which we do the killing. The question is whether or not we're fighting a just war with the possibility of there being a restoration of peaceful relations at the end of that war. And I think the answer is no. And it is facilitated by drones and by those technologies. But those technologies are not what are responsible for the failure. What is responsible for the failure is our inability to say that we either are in favor of warring in this part of the world or we're not. And most people who are opposed to warring in this part of the world use drones and use civilian casualties as a kind of excuse because they can't gain any traction by saying that they are opposed to the war on terrorism. So I think that by focusing on the truth about drones, which is that drones are no different than any other weapon, if we didn't have drones, we would invent them or we would use something else to do this aerial killing, that we are really focusing our attention away from what the fundamental question is, which is, are we fighting an effective war in the Middle East? And have we made ourselves safer or the world safer? And I seems to me that 14 years after 9-11, I can't name one country which is safer than it was in 2001. Yeah, may, may, would it be? I don't and know if you would let me, me agree with you. Bill, I, I, I would love to agree with you if it, if it won't bother you too much, because I agree with you a thousand percent, and I brought up the subject of drones because it's the title of your book, but I, I think that the, the much more important question is the one you raise about how we stop these endless wars entirely, regardless of, of weaponry. Uh, and, and part of that presumably has got to mean we stop training all of these warriors in all of these schools, right? Well, I think part of it has to be that we either have to recognize that we've created a professional class and ask them to go out there and do a job, and now we have to ponder what it is that we've asked them to do and whether or not that is, in fact, how we want to run our national security. But secondly, I think the, really, the, the, the link between our study of the most militarized schools in America and my book on drones is how we are just drowning in data, and that that data has become so overwhelming that merely trying to master that data, it, 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 it hides... Uh, whether or not the data is of value and what it is actually for. So we we have this, like, we're, we have a car that's running out of control, and uh, we're, we're, we're trying furiously uh, just to get it into the lane so that we uh, can operate it safely, and we are not really in control of 
the, the, the direction of travel or the destination that we're reaching while we are furiously just trying to get it under control. I, I couldn't agree more. Pick up a copy of the book. It is called Unmanned Drones, Data, and the Illusion of Perfect Warfare. We've been speaking with William Arkin. Check out his article. We'll have a link at talknationradio.org. It is called The Most Militarized Universities in America. Bill Arkin, thank you for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you for having me on. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.